You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Joining us live for the next half hour is David Lassner, University of Hawaii president, who last week announced he will step down from his post at the end of next year. We will have our phone lines open and invite you to call in and join our roundtable talk. The numbers to reach us, 808-941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 on the neighbor islands. So, President Lassner, welcome. Thank you. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, you know... Your announcement shocked everybody. Uh, how long had you been thinking about this? Uh, I've been thinking about it for a couple of years. Uh, I, in conversation with uh, my previous chair of the Board of Regents, Randy Moore, um, he asked me one day what my plans were. Um, I think at that point I had beat the national average for a serving sitting president. And I told him at that time, I said, mm, end of 2024 is kind of on my mind. And that's exactly where I am landing up now. Okay, and I, I, I hear you'll be turning 70. <laughs> Is that I will right? be. I will be. I'm, I'm very flattered at the number of people who are shocked at how old I am. So I'm glad I've been hanging in there so well. But I, I thought um, I wanted people to know I'm really just doing this on my own terms, on my own time. And I'm ready to be um, in a role that doesn't demand 24 by 7 attention. Well, you know... Uh, I can't believe it's been like a decade, you know, because right. I think I remember talking to you when you first got the job right. and you didn't really seek it out uh, and you right. stuck around. I did. You know, um, so UH is the only place I've had a grown up job. And so um, when I was approached about serving, I really felt like if the Board of Regents thinks I'm the right person, that is the most important uh, element of success. And obviously, I knew the institution well from all those years uh, poking wires around and helping people with technology on all 10 campuses and, you know, throughout UH Manoa. And so I, I think I knew what I was getting into, and I was ready to help. Well, you were hired uh, under uh, President um, Fujio Matsuda. Fuji uh I was. I was. And, you know, that dates me, too, because I remember, you know, just going through the whole list of university presidents afterwards. But uh, I don't know. I mean, what advice did he give you? So he didn't actually hire me. I've read that in, mm -hmm. in the media. Um, his role was really um, as, a, as an innovator. He was an MIT uh, educated engineer. And when he was UH president in the 70s, he realized that computers, then big computers, would likely have an influence on education. So he sent a group of um, UH folks around the country to look at the best projects, the leading projects in the country using computers in education. Uh, one of them happened to be at the University of Illinois. It was a, a system called Plato. Um, and when they came back and talked about what they wanted to do next, he funded a pilot project to help UH try out three different technologies um, my student job at the University of Illinois was writing educational software in the Plato Lab. So when they decided to get it started, they thought they should get somebody to help them uh, understand it so the, the pilot project could be successful. And there's not much cheaper than a grad student. <laughs> so I came over on a one-year half-time contract. Um, so he it was his project, but he didn't, like, go find me or anything right. like that. But did he give you advice, or, or did you look at his tenure as university president? You know, I mean, I, you know, um, I look to all of the leaders that I've served under pretty much in every job. And, you know, um, you learn the lessons of what works. And hopefully you also learn the lessons of what doesn't work. Um, he was a he was a successful president. Uh, no, no question. He, um, you know, all of the presidents who made it through this you know, eight, nine years, that's a good run at the University of Hawaii. Yeah, and, you know, I think uh, when when I first talked to you about taking this job, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I, I know you were concerned because you're an avid hiker and you were worried that you wouldn't have much time, you know, um, out on the hills. But I'm thinking after That turned ten, out to be true. <laughs> yeah, and I'm thinking after 10 years, gee, you know, yeah. Mount Everest is going to be a piece of cake for you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't... That's not my aspiration, but I do want to get back on the Hawaii uh, Hawaii trails. Yeah, well, uh, we uh, have a caller on the line already, um, Mark Kramer from Makaha. What's on your mind? Well, uh, Mr. Lassner, I just 
want you to know that for the longest time I've been wanting to write you and apologize to you because a decade ago when you were first nominated and named as the president of the university system, I thought, what were they thinking? How can a computer nerd run an entire university system? And apparently a computer nerd can run the system extremely well. You've surprised me and continue to surprise me. You've been exactly what the system has needed. You've you've run it with Aloha and Malama and you've I mean it'll be it's really sad to see you go. And I think some of the criticisms you've received, especially from the legislature, have been unfounded and selfish on their part. And I just want to thank you and apologize for my initial impressions, but thank you for a job well done. Oh, mahalo, Mark. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Mark. You know, uh, but he's right. You know, I think you represented stability at a time when we really needed someone to take the helm. Uh, and uh, so thank you uh, for sticking around and, and, and providing that uh, for us. We've just come off of the pandemic and we're still kind of working our way through. Um, what was that like for you? Um, you know, it was really interesting. Um, we were, I think, the first institution to recognize um, how serious it was going to be. So first we, um, well, we, we announced before spring break that after the spring break, this is 2020, we would be pivoting to almost completely online. And I think um, as we, as we led, um, many other institutions followed. Um, I give all the credit in the world to our faculty who just had a couple weeks to figure out how to you know, complete the semester online. And it turned out, you know, most of the next year was mostly online as well. Our students adapted, um, our technical support staff um, had to upgrade everything. We were fortunate, we had all the systems and technologies in place. They just weren't scaled for, you know, 45, 50,000 students in every class all at once, but we pulled it off. Um, and just kudos to everybody. Our students were graduating. We kept at it. That's, you know, one of the most important things we do. Our uh, faculty got back to doing their research. Um, our leadership team was amazing. You know, initially we were meeting constantly because there were decisions all the time. Uh, after a while, we got down to meeting once a week or so just to monitor what was happening. Uh, we had to keep track of surges. Um, we were one of the first organizations to um, declare a vaccine mandate, and we pulled it off without very much drama. And I you know, really want to thank the Department of Health, um, the mayors, and uh, Governor Ige, who really let us steer our course in a manner that was appropriate. Um, our public employee unions were really um, easy to work with. They, uh, they're committed to our mission, right? The leaders of um, our two major unions that we work with um, UPA and HGA, you know, they're led by people who care deeply about the university, and that makes a real difference. And we just tried to be reasonable in all the changes we were making, you know, really quickly. You think you're proudest of that, having pulled the team together and, and get through that? I don't know that I would pick one thing, but I'm I'm very proud. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, I grew up. My mother used to say, "You leave a place better than you know when you found it." And and uh, you know, looking back at just the accomplishments and the people that we've had in the studio, you know, record number of research grants, right? Record number of donations with the University of Foundation. Uh, you know, so many positive things. That's right. Um, uh, across our system. Um, you know, graduation rates are improving, uh, retention is improving. Um, we're, there's a lot that's different post-pandemic, and I think we've got a, you know, that's true of higher education across the country. Um, but, you know, understanding um, a lot of students want to stay online. Um, and so that's a different pattern of going. We're sharing more courses between our community colleges. Uh, we're offering more early college. Those are college credit classes offered to um, high school students in their high schools and they get credit both toward high school graduation and toward a college degree um, should they choose to attend 
No, those are all different than the things we were doing before. Right, right. But bright spots uh, all bright for spots. the university. Well, if you're just uh, joining us, this is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Our live guest this morning, University of Hawaii President David Lassner, who is set to retire at the end of next year. You can join our discussion by calling one 941 3689 Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Support for HPR comes from SMS Research. For over 60 years, providing market research, public opinion surveys, and social and economic impact studies to Hawaii businesses and organizations. Online at smshawaii.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we find out what went into the development of the state's digital equity plan. We'll also hear about how the public can weigh in and provide feedback to make the plan even better. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. If you're just joining the conversation, we are talking with UH President David Lassner, and our phone lines are open. Uh, call us at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. And David, I know I saw a quote that said that you are not going to be a lame duck. <laughs> so, what are your priorities uh, in this last year? Uh, thanks. That, yeah, I got. Um, I, I keep trying to take something off the list every time I want to add something to the list. Um, a few things I'd like. Um, I hope that we can engage some community conversations around um, the issue of university autonomy. And I think that's, you know, some of the challenges we see are, um, you know, lack of uh, consensus around what are the appropriate roles of the legislature, the Board of Regents, and the president in the administration. Uh, much of the movement toward autonomy started in the, um, it was in the uh, 1990s, and if you remember the Economic Revitalization Task Force, thumbs mm -hmm. up, Hawaii. Yes. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, with Walter Dodds, yes, who Walter has Dodds. just agreed to chair our billion-dollar fundraising campaign. Oh, wow. So we're very excited about that. But, but that was not a university initiative saying, leave us alone. That was the community saying, this economy cannot thrive without a strong university. And a strong university uh, needs to be able to manage itself. And I think um, we've backslid a little bit since the kind of highlights out following the 2000 constitutional amendment that uh, provided um, some level of self, you know, self-governance. It's not true autonomy, and I don't think anyone expects complete autonomy. But, um, yeah. Yeah, well, you've had a tough time at the legislature. I mean, we're, we've got to deal with the budget uh, and uh, uh you know, the, the concern that the, uh, I know the Senate Ways and Means uh, uh, leadership, you know, had about how the university was being run. And I think they were calling on you to resign, or at least that's a story, you know, th that we saw come out of that. Front page Super mm -hmm. Bowl Sunday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so, uh, we, yes, there's a lot of work that needs to get done at the legislature. And I don't know if they're going to be nicer to you because you're leaving or meaner to you. <laughs> I don't have any expectation that, it, you know, Things will particularly change because I'm leaving, but I hope we can get to a better place just because that will be better for the university and the state of Hawaii and whoever follows in my footsteps. And, you know, you've uh, made it a, a priority to focus on workforce development. I mean, we all saw what happened with the pandemic and how the bottom fell out, you know, with tourism, with nobody coming here and, and, and particularly with health care. 
it just really underscores the need that we've got to do better. Yeah, so we have a, a new strategic plan. I won't you know, go into all the details, but um, it only has four, we call them imperatives, and one of them is very focused on workforce development. And you know, we used to think of that as something just the community colleges do, but as you point out, healthcare, you know, a lot of those jobs require bachelor's degrees. Um, teacher workforce, and we'd like to work more with the DOE. And you know, I'd, I've challenged our people, how do we help eliminate the teacher shortage? Um, that should not be impossible in this state. And the more um, we can educate people for the jobs that exist here, it's better for our students and it's better for the employers, none of whom want to have to bring people in from the continent or other countries. And you know, you've got some big decisions ahead um, when it comes to athletics, although I, I, think I read somewhere that we're in the black, is that right? Yeah, last year under uh, Athletics Director Matlin, we actually had what would commonly be called a balanced budget yeah, in athletics. Okay, but we still the have The stresses to... increase regularly in that. Uh, I mean, yeah, intercollegiate athletics nationally is in incredible turmoil right now. Uh, everything is changing, and frankly, everything is getting more expensive. So it's, it's, not, it's not like you permanently solve the problem when you balance the budget. Last year, now you have to balance it for the next year, which has different uh, responsibilities and requirements. And so then what goes, what's forward? Uh, what's ahead for the athletic department? Well, we have a new athletic director. He's, you know, out and about. He's met many people in the community. Um, so far, the feedback I'm getting uh, from the people he's meeting has been excellent. Um, he, he, he knows the financial condition. And so we're working through, you know, you, it's just like being at home. You increase revenue or you decrease costs. And, and we're in a situation with, with the Chingfield you know, I don't know if we've been able to, to fill the stands in the games that we've had. Uh, and there's the looming question of the Aloha Stadium. Right. Um, well, our, our, we don't control Aloha Stadium. Um, you know, the, the um, decisions to let it fall into disrepair and take this long to figure out what to do have all been, you know, many people in state government over many years. Um, for us, we were presented with you know, a major challenge on very short notice, which is you know, in December to be told, you can't have fans here next August. You know, we had to look at the options. Could we play somewhere else? We looked at uh, expanding Chingfield, and you know, it, it took a little while, but we pretty quickly, within a month or so, came to the conclusion that expanding Chingfield would be the, the best option for all kinds of reasons. And you know, in my opinion, we pulled off a miraculous project to. Um, get 9,000 people into what had been, you know, a sleepy little practice field uh, within nine months. And, you know, we just expanded to about 15,000 seats. Um, you know, we have food trucks and uh, concerts in Les Murakami Stadium. So it's a, it's a fun game day experience. But our plan is to move back to Aloha Stadium as soon as it's ready for us. And, you know, uh, I know that there are still challenges ahead with Mauna Kea. Uh, how are you looking at that? So uh, the legislature two years, two sessions ago, uh, passed a law basically um, removing UH as the responsible party for the Mauna Kea lands over a phased period. Uh, so they stood up this new uh, Mauna Kea Stewardship and Oversight Authority. Uh, it's chaired by John Komeji. And um, we try to work closely with them to effectuate a transition. Um, I think, you know, it's a hard job. I'm, I am very proud of the work our team did. Um, I think we had an external report uh, uh, that DLNR commissioned that said many people consider it one of the best managed, piece of pub best managed pieces of public lands in the state. We have a great um, stewardship program. We have a ranger program. But clearly, there's a disagreement about whether there should be telescopes, and if so, how many. Um, and I've apologized many times. I can do it again. Uh, the, the university was not a good steward of that of Mauna Kea uh, for about the first. Um, took about 35 years to wake up. It was the 1998 audit, but um, we got on it over you know the first decade under other presidents, and I've certainly spent a lot of time. And we put a completely new structure in place within UH completely based at UH Hilo um, with 
people who are concerned about caring for the mountain and are not astronomers. Do you think that was maybe the roughest patch as you look back in your tenure? Personally, it was the hardest thing I went through because it divided so many of my, my friends. Um, I, you know, um, this year we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of the, um, not celebrating, but remembering the 40th anniversary of the arrests at Hali Mohalu, if you oh, remember yes. the leprosy right. hospital. So I'm, um, my background is as kind of a firebrand, and I was a protester, and I was actually there the day of the arrests. And when I saw, I looked at myself during Mauna Kea, and I was the person being protested, and I thought, wow, how did, you know, how did this happen? And I don't regret my decisions. I wish UH had woken up and become a, a great steward much sooner. You know, looking back, I mean, I can remember when uh, there was that move to eliminate the School of Public Health, right? And then just, I guess just coming, fast forwarding and coming yep. through the pandemic. And um, yep. yeah, it's just interesting, all the decisions we make, you know. And yeah, I, I mean, you know, obviously we had rallies and um, we had a group of students occupying Bachman Hall for, for several months. You know, and interestingly, um, when they left during Christmas break and I came back, it, it felt kind of empty, I have to say. It was, you know, not that I loved being occupied, but, you know, <laughs> it, it was a bit of life and, you know, it's part of being on a university campus. Yeah, well, now you talk about Bachman Hall. Are you back in there? Or is this we are not yet, but okay. we expect to be back in by the end of the calendar year. I okay. think, you know, I'm, I'm really glad we're able to do that. It's such a beautiful and historic building and it had been... Uh, left to, um, it was really in bad disrepair with leakages and mold, and um, I think it's going to be beautiful when we're finished. And we've got those lovely Charlot murals uh, that are being protected throughout. Um, and uh, the theme is really to, interestingly, we had a group of students help us with the design, and they highlighted things like the Vietnam War protests that took place there you know, and we were fresh off of the Mauna Kea uh, occupation that also took place there. I mean, it really can be a gathering place for the campus. You know, so you've got that uh, uh, construction undergoing. You've got the housing uh, next door or the old NOAA building. Uh, I know there are folks that are looking for the future of the College of Ed over there. Cause, uh, yeah, so we got, we've got we got a lot going on. Bachman's about finishing. We just started turning Sinclair Library, which no longer has books in it, into a student success center. Uh, we just opened the RISE um, um, student housing across the street from Scheidler, which is centered on innovation and entrepreneurship. We're super excited about that, public-private partnership. And, and as you said, the uh, old NOAA building, we're just going to be breaking ground on that one next week. Um, and I think um, looking at the College of Ed property, uh, it's College of Ed, the old PBS building, and the lab school. Um, we really want to create a campus town experience. If you think about, you know, shops and cafes and housing and probably some parking and really create a vibrant place for students, faculty and staff to gather after 430, which we do not have today. Right. OK, well, that's on your list before it's you on my leave. list. All right. OK, well, we certainly appreciate you uh, stopping by this morning and we hope to have you back on again. Thanks. You know where to find me. All right. Thanks so much. Aloha. We've been uh, fortunate to have UH President David Lassner with us for the first half hour of our show. Thanks again, President Lassner. Maui fundraising, that is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beach, Chad Blair, is on the line today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So this a story really oh, it looks at some of the concerns that people have about all this money that's coming in. Yeah, the money that's coming in and where it's going, and this is from Alan Q, who you might recall uh, reported that story last week about Connie Elaine and the the Lahaina fundraiser and, and some questions about the political um, intent of that organization. This one 
is for a group called the Lahaina Fire Fund. Uh, it was set up just three days after the uh, Lahaina fires in August. It is not a registered nonprofit charity. Let's make that clear. Uh, and yet, the, the people that set this up have used it to ask for direct aid. They are promising that if you donate to the Lahaina Fire Fund, that money will go directly to the fire survivors. So far, it's raised well over $900,000, up almost a million dollars online. But here's the thing, um, 750000 of that, that money has gone to Maui churches and, and a nonprofit, another nonprofit, or rather a nonprofit called Malama Lahaina. It has not gone directly to their survivors. And so Alan is trying to figure out more about this mysterious group. So even though they held out there at the beginning that this was going to be direct aid, we don't know if that's actually what's happened. Yeah, it's and there's another twist, which really uh, is very interesting. I'm not sure what to make of it, but Alan did speak to one of the three people that runs this fund. He's apparently a, a realtor on Maui. His name is Eric West, and he's also been very prominent on social media during this very fundraiser talking about conspiracy theories, specifically that the wildfire that, that, that spread was actually, this is not me, I'm quoting, a directed energy weapon, and that that caused the fires, but it has now been covered up by the government. Uh, it's not just limited to some YouTube posts. Those have been taken down. Mr. West has also appeared on that Alex Jones program, right? InfoWars. Remember Alex Jones? Mm -hmm. He's the guy that got into trouble saying that with the Sandy Hook murder, I think, um, that it was all a stage and it didn't, didn't happen at all. But again, promoting this laser theory. Now, the big question is, where's the money going to go? Alan did talk to some of those churches. Some of them are saying they are trying to mobilize uh, to get that money to survivors. Didn't talk to all of them. But this was not the original intent of the fundraiser, which promised to direct $1.6 million. That was their goal to get emergency supplies uh, and, and other uh, supplies, other information, other help into West Maui. That has not been the case so far. Yeah. So, you know, what are the regulators going to do? You know, what does the AG say? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And, and uh, Alan did talk to a, an attorney uh, on Maui, and he's basically saying this is really a misuse uh, of, of funds. You are using misinformation out there to get this money. You are materially, that's a lawyer term, right, materially representing or misrepresenting your intent. This attorney actually has written, the Attorney General, Ann Lopez, has written to Governor Josh Green, has written to the House Speaker, Scott Psyche. That letter was delivered um, September 19th, just recently. Uh, we haven't heard back from all of them. Uh, the AG's office would not comment directly on what's going on here, but did confirm that this Lahaina Fire Fund is in fact not a registered 501c3 nonprofit in the state of Hawaii. And so then the money that these churches supposedly received, I mean, uh, uh, I hope there's an accounting for that as well. We would like to think so. Uh, and Mr. Eric West has told Alan that he will get him the disbursements, if you will, the paper trail. That has not been forthcoming. There's still also $160,000 that hasn't been accounted for. It appears, and this is Sort of what's being put out there is that West and the two others, including his son, Colton West, they may not have recognized that when they went on GoFundMe and, and uh, give, send, go to these crowdsourcing uh, websites, that in fact that could be taxable income unless that money goes directly to what they say it's supposed to go to. So there seems to have been a fear uh, that they would be on the hook, the IRS, and hence the urgency perhaps to get this money to the churches. Wow, what a mess. All right. Well, yes, we'll, we'll for a follow-up. Thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Chad Blair with today's reality check uh, to read Alan's story on this. Uh, visit civilbeat.org.
program yesterday, we had a story about how the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, NCIS, has taken over an unsolved murder mystery. 43 years ago, two Marines were killed. 19-year-old Larry Martins from Wisconsin and 21-year-old Rodney Rocky Padilla from Colorado were both Lance Corporals. Both had just recently been deployed and returned to Hawaii. We talked to retired Denver police captain Joe Padilla about the death of his kid brother. He started a Facebook page, Justice for Rocky Padilla, long ago. He recalls the heartbreak his family has endured over the decades, and he says it's been doubly hard given his law enforcement background as this case is unsolved. I was a police officer when Rocky was killed, and I'll never forget where I was at. I'll never forget what was said to me and, and uh, my reaction. It, it was total devastation. I was in a police station. At the time, I worked for a smaller agency outside of Denver, but I did end up retiring from the Denver Police Department. But it was hearing that my younger brother, who lived with me before he went in the Marine Corps, was killed tragically, just, just tore me apart. And what was really difficult is... You know, distance, I was 25 years old, young family. I didn't have the, the jurisdiction. I didn't have the funds to go out and become involved in the case, you know. And, and uh, so for 43 years, I've been un, unable to really and do what I, I feel like I can do as a law enforcement officer. But uh, uh, that's why I'm just put my total faith in NCIS that they're going to resolve this case. And they just took over this case not too long ago. Yes, they took over the case in 2021. And what does that mean to you, you know, knowing that you come from this law enforcement background? Uh, I mean, I, I know that the, you know, Honolulu Police Department did what they could at the time, but then things just went cold. Well, it, that's been some of the issues that I've always had is I, I've been frustrated by the fact that I always felt something more could have been done on this case. So through the years, I was reaching out to HPD asking, okay, what's the status? Uh, have you heard about this new the development in law enforcement? Have you heard about this? And so in 1990, they did reopen the case, but they weren't able to resolve it. And it wasn't until 2016 that NCIS, Phil Camaro, and uh, the analyst, Chris Miana, reopened the case. And uh, and that's when they notified me that the case is open. They were actively working it. I was really excited. I flew out there and did the press conference with NCIS, HPD, and the Marine Corps. And quite honestly, Catherine, is a lot of promises were made to me that this case was going to become a priority and that it would be actively worked. And so my hopes were really high. I was excited when I left Hawaii and thinking that, okay, we're on the way to getting this thing solved. That was 2016. And... Um, now it's 2023, and that's why I'm I'm very pleased that NCIS took it over because I feel that knowing the personnel that are assigned to this case, they have a heartfelt interest in solving it. You know, I, a lot of promises were made to me by HPD, but I don't know if it ever became a, a priority for that department. Back then we heard that there were some new leads, and so they were optimistic. But have you gotten any indication that they're making headway at all? The only indication I have is that they're working it. As far as any specifics on what they were, what they're doing, I don't know. But there again, a lot of problems were made. And the fact that NCIS is willing and able to take over the case, I think, is, is a miracle. You know, HPD obviously is overwhelmed or overworked, or the case didn't receive the attention I thought it should have received. And so NCIS has stepped up, and they're doing the investigation now. So my expectations on them is to let's put our nose to the grindstone and work it. Let's just resolve this case. I can understand if, you know, the suspects are dead, but I would like to have some resolution in my brother's case. You know, being a police officer all these years, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't help. I couldn't become involved. I couldn't become involved in the investigation. And it was just frustrating. And we understand that it was a fisherman who alerted police to the scene. I don't know who they've spoken to or who they still plan to speak to. I do know that uh, they're making progress in doing interviews, and I don't know the status of uh, the evidence. I don't know if DNA's been obtained. I don't know if that's what they're working on. I, I don't know. I'm not in a position to make any of those you know, comments on any of that. All I can say is that NCIS, again, promise you they're working it, and I believe that they're doing it. I believe that if, if it can be resolved, 
NCIS is going to be able to push it until it does become resolved. Yeah, I mean, we don't know at this point if, you know, those that were there that night were in the military, you know, if they still live on island, if they've moved elsewhere. But certainly you would like to think that this has been gnawing at somebody for a long time and that they might want to come clean as to what happened. Absolutely. What I'm hoping for is the old loyalties from 43 years ago. People grow up, people grow old, but I know that the murder of two Marines, there has to be more people involved. On the press release that NCIS and HP put out, they said that there were several pieces of evidence that indicated there were several people there. So that tells me there might have been some type of gathering. Who knows how many people were there? And uh, I don't know if the people involved are in prison or if they're dead, but they might have told somebody else who told somebody else who told somebody else that, hey, just give us some direction. You know, let NCIS do their job by providing some information for them. That's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping somebody will think, you know, I remember driving by there one night or that night and I saw this vehicle there, and I never thought about it, but now it may be important. Or I was at a bar, and these two guys are bragging about killing Marines. I never thought it was important. I didn't know if it was true, but this is who was bragging. I'm hoping somebody with that type of information will come forward. My mother's still alive. She's 88 years old, and uh, we speak about this case weekly. I go over there, and she still lives independently, and uh, she's got a big, huge... 14 by 16 portrait of Rocky in his uniform in her front room. And uh, she prays to it. She talks to him. And uh, we just need it resolved. You know, Rocky was the baby of the family. There were four of us. And uh, he was 21 when he was killed. And I always had a closeness to Rocky because, you know, he lived with me before he went in the Marine Corps. My, you know, my parents weren't weren't together. So it was just us four kids and my mom. With Rocky being the baby, we always kept an eye on him. We were so proud of him when he went in the Marine Corps. He was the first one to go in the service, and, and to lose him like that, it, uh, it tore our family apart. Uh, my mom, it was just a very difficult time for her. Several months went by before I felt she was able to fully function again, but it's just never the same. There's that gap there, and the gap of losing Rocky is made worse by not knowing what happened and who did it. Was she ever able to make a trip over here to the islands? She never did. And I have one other brother who's a year younger than me. He went out there on uh, vacation and did a Crime Stoppers. I think it would have probably been about uh, 96, 97. But that was the last thing. Myself, I never wanted to go to Hawaii. I didn't think I could go and enjoy myself knowing that's where Rocky lost his life. And it wasn't until NCIS called me and asked me to come out there and do the press conference in 2016 that I finally decided to go out there. I went back out in 2019 and presented Rocky's case to the NCIS cold case long-term missing persons, uh, uh, cold case homicide long-term missing persons conference in April 2019 and presented it to numerous law enforcement officers from the Hawaiian Islands. And uh, I was hoping that would develop more interest and maybe spark somebody to come forward to something they might have heard from an informant or something. Over the years, there have been great advancements, you know, in technology and DNA, and I don't know what you've seen as an officer there in Denver with cases that have been solved. But, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know anything else that, that your background as a, as a law enforcement officer brings to this story. You know, I retired as a captain, and I ran numerous investigative units through the years when I was a lieutenant and signed a special units. And what I found was needed on these cases is obviously we need to find out what advances in DNA evidence there is or, or any other type of evidence that they can collect. But it doesn't beat good old getting out, interviewing people, knocking on doors and going through the cases again and re-interviewing people that were initially interviewed because maybe there are different loyalties, like I said, or maybe they remembered something that they had forgotten back in 1980. So. I'm hoping that's what's being done, that the case is being reopened and worked as if it's a new case. And I don't know if you've been in contact with the family of the other Marine? I did. Larry's uh, uh, sister, Melissa, I did speak to her. Uh, It was last year, and unfortunately his father's no longer alive. She was quite a few years younger, younger than Larry and didn't really have that close relationship with him, but she said it would mean the world to her family 
for this to be solved, to give it some closure. So to me, it's unfathomable that two young men serving their country can just be brutally murdered like that, and it and it isn't solved. It can't be overlooked. They'd both just come back from, uh, or Rocky did, I don't know about Larry, but he just got back from deployment six months floating off the coast of Pakistan when the Russians invaded Afghanistan. They deployed you know, a large number of Marines and sailors and, and the military there off the coast of Pakistan in case they needed to go in. And so, you know, he was out to risk in his life for his country comes back and he's killed in this country. It just doesn't seem fair. And if there's anything you would say to anyone who was there that night that your brother lost his life, what would that be? You need to step forward. You need to come clean. It's been 43 years. I'm asking you, come talk to NCIS. Call the tip line. Call HPD Crime Stoppers and let us know what happened. It's been long enough. Give our family some closure. Give our family some peace. Give them peace. Give them closure. That was a heartfelt appeal by the brother of Rocky Padilla, a Marine Corps soldier who was murdered 43 years ago this month. Padilla, along with Lance Corporal Larry Martins, was beaten and shot. Their bodies were found outside their vehicle at Mauna Bay by a boater at the Hawaii boat launch. If you know anything that could help investigators, you're asked to call the NCIS or Honolulu Police Crime Stoppers. There is a reward being offered. Look for links on our website later today. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. This week's segment is thanks to recordings from the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. UH Hilo Professor Patrick Hart introduces us to Hawaii's short-eared owl. Pueo, or Hawaiian short-eared owl, is our only native owl and is important in Hawaiian culture as an almakua. Pueo are active mainly during the day, unlike the more common barn owl, which is mostly seen at night and has a striking white face. Pueo spend a majority of their time soaring over open grassy areas hunting for small mammals such as mice and rats. They're doing well on most of the Hawaiian islands, but it's becoming more difficult to hear the call of the pueo on Oahu, where they're considered an endangered subspecies. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, committed to helping preserve, protect, and restore the biological diversity of Hawaii Island. Friendsofhakalauforest.org. Maui farmers affected by the recent wildfires are slowly trying to recover from this devastating natural disaster. HPR's Catherine Kluwit-Pactel joins us this morning. Hi there. Good morning. So you've been talking to a, a number of farmers. I have been. I've been really enjoying it. It's Farmers just astound me. And there's so many incredible farmers that, well, really every farmer on Maui was affected in some way by either the the wind or the fire on August 8th. Joel Winicky is a tomato farmer who owns and operates Maui-grown tomatoes. They live in Olinda, and their main farm is in Haiku. On August 8th, they experienced a double hit from both fire and wind damage. We've been affected by both the fire and the wind. So our tomato farm is in Haiku, where we didn't have any fire damage, but we had heavy major wind damage. We have 300-foot by 30-foot greenhouses down there, and all three of them took major structural damage. One of them lost the cover, so we lost all 600 thriving vines that were in it. Another one took enough damage to it that we are now losing all the vines. And a lot of that really had to do with the fact that we don't have hired labor. It's just my wife and I. And... Where we live at the top of Olinda Road is where the first fire started right across the street from us. Some really phenomenal friends and neighbors of ours 
and I spent many days fighting the fires ourselves with chainsaws and excavators and hoses and just water rigs that we could make up and put out the fires. I've spent a lot of time with those efforts, which completely take us away from the vines that we need to care for because they require so much attention. Tomatoes, they're a very difficult crop to grow, and they just require incredible amounts of labor. (laughs) So when I'm taken away like that for weeks at a time, it's not a good thing for the tomatoes. I've also just been so grateful that we didn't lose our home and we're still really hopeful. We've definitely taken more damage than we can recover from on our own. Yeah, that's so heartbreaking. You know, you, you've got your home, you've got your business, and yeah, if it's just the two of them, that's really tough. It is. So before the fires, they produced about 60,000 pounds of tomatoes annually. They sold to most Maui retailers, Mana Foods, Whole Foods, down-to-earth local shops, and a lot of West Maui restaurants, as many farmers did. They've been working to expand and diversify their crops, but tomatoes still pay their bills, and the damages left them in a really tough spot. We've taken a complete nosedive in production. We went from week before the fire doing somewhere along the lines of 2,500 pounds a week to currently 500 pounds a week. It's going to nosedive from here in the next couple weeks as well. We've applied for three different disaster relief funds. We've never asked for assistance before. We just need enough to get into the new season. It takes a while for the money to come in because from the time we actually plant a seed, it takes at least four months until we have any sellable color of tomatoes. And then it takes a few weeks to a month to actually start receiving checks from what we've sold. It's a four or five month wait for money. So that's why if we don't have enough funds put away for the off season, it's detrimental to the farm, clearly. Yeah, you know, when you're talking tomato vines, those things are pretty fragile. It doesn't take much to break them. And when you've got huge winds like we saw, gosh, yeah, just devastating. Yeah, those 80-mile-an-hour winds, um, you know, not only damaged the vines, but really, really ripped through their greenhouses as well. So that's a huge loss for them. And right now they're waiting to see what funding may come through to help them while they work from sunrise to sundown, trying to replant and regrow their crops. In addition to the storm damages, Winnikea is suffering from market loss, like many farmers across Maui. Well, with many West Maui restaurants closed, the demand for local produce has dropped, and it's making people think about what comes next for the local economy and finding alternatives. Winnikea says it's really a chance to shift the way the local economy is driven. By making everyday choices to spend at local businesses, that money stays in circulation in Hawaii rather than supporting a mainland corporation. And he says this is a huge chance to reset. One of the organizations working on creating those shifts in Maui's economy is the Maui Food Hub. Winiki is one of many farmers who sells his produce through the hub. And they got started during COVID in 2020. It creates a market network for local farmers connecting their produce with local consumers. So it's it's kind of connecting the dots for people to buy from local farmers. Autumn Ness is board president of the Maui Food Hub and one of its founders. So the Food Hub, Hub helps raise awareness of how to buy locally directly from farmers and support those producers. She says it's a powerful chance to shift to an economy that isn't dependent on tourism. Ness says some people who have lost everything in the fires are waiting for hotels to reopen so they can get back to work there. It's really hard to ask people that are in this situation to go have to make money by waiting on people from somewhere else. It's a different situation to ask someone, hey, I can pay you a living wage to be a part of Maui's recovery. I can pay you a living wage to go help bring food from a farm to the hub in your neighborhood. And you don't have to stop what you're doing and go clean toilets at a hotel. So building this local food economy for the hub, that's why we were born. We're like, we really want to empower people to feed each other. We want to pay you well. We want to take care of our farmers. You know, there's an economy in taking care of your community. The people of Maui have the power really, really easily to support our farmers and ranchers in the short term. And then with that same behavior, create an economy where we don't have to keep doing this. We don't have to keep like 
when we're in our most crisis times, you know, beg for the tourists to come back. Like we can create an entirely new economy where we literally support each other. Yeah, I mean, you know, food security, right? That's what it's all about. It is. And connecting those dots between local farmers who are growing this incredible produce instead of importing all of that food that I think it's 90%, um, high 80s or low 90% currently that we import. And so being able to make those shifts, you know, Maui and many of the islands are capable of supporting ourselves from farming and have a huge reduction in the way that we support ourselves through tourism, through imports. And so Ness and others are really calling for this fire, this tragedy, to be an opportunity to look toward ways that we can improve the way that we do things and use the power of our wallets to make those everyday choices. She says, you know, we have to eat three times a day and every time we can choose where we get our food. And so giving ourselves that power use this chance to reset is really powerful. So I'll be looking more into that in a story next week if you want to have a listen. Yeah. So, you know, lots of uh, aspects as we turn the stone over, you know, how do we become more resilient? How do we grow the food that we eat, right? And eat what we grow. I think that's what the uh, the agriculture director uh, likes to say. So yeah, but definitely a chance to reset. But thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. We've been talking to Catherine Cluett-Pactall. She's been reaching out to farmers there on the Valley Isle about uh, recovering from the recent wildfires. have to go now, but up tomorrow, we hear about the uh, Iona Contemporary Dance Theater returning to the stage after an eight-year hiatus. Give us some feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple, or head to our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. (music) 